welcome to the Augustine podcast. This is a podcast, mostly of interviews, about the work being done on the life and writings of St. Augustine of Hippo. Each week we feature a different guest, usually on to talk about a book that they've written that considers the writings or the life of St. Augustine. The podcast came about because so many people have written on Augustine that there is Augustine, and there are many Augustines, there are many Augustinianisms, and there are many schools of thought interpreting his work. More and more, this work has been specialized, and that means that the work is being done by theologians, by philosophers, by historians, by classicists, and the work often gets broken up. So the goal of this podcast was to hopefully reach across those lines and talk to scholars from different perspectives and different voices. Some weeks we'll find scholars who are very interested in his theology and his confessional faith. Sometimes we might just be talking to someone interested in a particular argument of his. Sometimes we'll be talking about his life in the context of late antiquity. I hope that you guys enjoy the podcast. This is our first episode, so bear with me. Because this is an academic pursuit, we won't have ads, and as a result, the production quality isn't going to be amazing. But if you'd like to sit in with me as I talk to world-leading scholars who are writing on Augustine, seeking truth with him, seeking truth from him, and looking to help us listen to Augustine's voice more and more, well, welcome. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Susanna Ticciotti. She is a professor of Christian theology at King's College London. She did her undergraduate, her master's, and her postdoctoral work at the University of Cambridge. Her interests include constructive Christian doctrinal theology, biblical hermeneutics, apophatic theology, and scriptural reasoning. She is the author of three books, Job and the Disruption of Identity, A New Apophaticism, Augustine and the Redemption of Signs, and the book we're going to be talking about today, Reading Augustine on Signs, Christ, Truth, and the Interpretation of Scripture. Professor Ticciotti, welcome. Thank you very much. Good. Well, why don't we start by just hearing a little bit about you. Uh, tell me about yourself and your career, and uh, more specifically, how do you define your work? Uh, well, I've got a background in music and maths, um, so somewhat um, at a distance from theology, but theology really took over um, during the course of my undergraduate um, degree. And I suppose the reasons for that were, were had to do with the way it allows you to probe conceptually in a way that remains in touch with living questions. Um, so the canvas is very broad. Um, the methods are, uh, are multiple, um, but in particular, I really enjoyed um, the ability to keep on asking questions all the way down um, in dialogue with other thinkers, um, both living and dead, um, in such a way that one can gain new angles on the world that we're living in and work out how to navigate our way through it. Um, so that gives you a bit of a sense of, of why theology kind of grabbed me. Um, I can say a little bit more, if you like, about the kind of work that I do theologically. Um, so I think of myself as a constructive theologian, which you already said in the introduction, thank you, um, uh, in the sense uh, precisely that um, I aim to do theology in a way which responds to contemporary problems, um, things that we're all thinking about um, in, our, um, in our cultural situations, um, and bring the resources of the past and the more recent past and indeed the present 
um, from the Christian tradition to bear on these problems in ways that might help us see them a bit differently, um, reframe them um, and move towards their repair. Um, I'm particularly keen on drawing on traditional resources, sometimes uh, reading them against the grain. Um, Augustine, who, who is the subject of the book that we're about to discuss, is one of my favourites. Um, and uh, he, yeah, it's just the depth of his question asking makes him particularly pertinent um, as a dialogue partner for today. Um, scripture um, is always there in the background um, as a resource which is both sort of fostering the Christian tradition, but also something which I'm kind of living with day to day. Uh, sometimes I go to it directly, sometimes it's mediated via other thinkers. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as in this book, I think a lot about um, how one best approaches scriptural texts in ways that open them up rather than close them down, in ways that sort of tap into ri the richness of them and allows them to speak sort of critically into today, um, rather than kind of leave them in the past. Um, so that, that that's an ongoing consideration that I have in biblical hermeneutics. Um, what else? I mean, I guess uh, I've said a little bit about reading against the grain. I'm interested in listening to contemporary critical voices um, who might open up different windows into the Christian tradition, which will allow it to speak differently into the present. So it's always a kind of dialogical way of working um, with um, a variety of voices that uh, I suppose allow one to hear each of those voices a little bit differently. Um, so that gives you a sense of my work, I hope. Yes. Definitely. Thank you. That's that's very helpful um, and sort of helps connect the dots between theology broadly and this work especially. So why, if I can ask, why Augustine? Uh, how did you first come to Augustine? You say it's often you find yourself engaging with him um, for depths of questions. I definitely understand that. But sort of who introduced you to Augustine or how does that come up? Uh, and specifically as someone who is not uh, what you would maybe call primarily an Augustine scholar, um, as someone like Robert Marcus, or um, you know, someone who works in the the history of theology and Augustine himself, as not primarily an Augustine scholar. How do you approach his work? Um, yeah, and how do you how do you sort of define reading against the grain with working the tradition and being faithful to the text? Maybe some of what's in the book will will open that up a bit. Mm. Well, it's it, it's always slightly serendipitous how one comes across and then remains with the thinkers that one comes across. I had fellow PhD students who were working more closely with Augustine and we did reading groups and stuff like that. So that was a sort of initial introduction. Um, I was then trying to find my way back to reading Paul, as in <laughs> the Apostle Paul. Um, and Augustine was a kind of stepping stone along the way to doing that. But then I kind of got stuck there. And it was particularly his anti-Pelagian writings which drew my attention. Um, some of those slightly later long works, so his um, long work against Julian of Aclanum, um, I got quite deep into that. Um, and again, I mean, that's quite a good example of a text which is perhaps not particularly popular um, with those. Right, not, not everyone's introduction to Augustine. No, um, but there's something about his rigorous pursuit of a different logic for thinking about the will, which I which really appealed to me, um, partly because, yeah, I mean, it, the fact that it goes round and round in circles um, is also a way of going deeper and deeper um, and not giving up on these questions. So where you have an apparent tension, um, he lives with that and then tries to work out, well, how can one talk about grace and free will at the same time? I mean, that's the sort of obviously apparent tension. 
Um, and he does so in, in such a way that he's able to speak quite counterculturally into our thoughts about free choice and the will today, which I think are a right mess, actually, the way we think about choice in our contemporary culture, um, particularly through a consumerist lens, um, the way choice operates there. Um, and is so defining of, of what we think we're for as human beings. Um, Augustine brings quite a different way of thinking um, which would make us, I suppose, question the sorts of presuppositions that lie behind a consumer capitalism. Um, and so I guess this is stuff I've got into slightly more recently will be to bring Augustine to bear on, on these kind of contemporary contexts. So that's one example, how his work on grace and free will will speak to a consumer society. Um, another example would be uh, Augustine's doctrine of original sin, um, which I love, um, and I take it um, I read it in a sort of structural sin kind of way. So sin is pervasive, it captivates us according to the systems that we live in, um, which we can't sort of step outside, even if one can resist them from within. Um, again, one might, might apply that to a kind of capitalist system um, in which we're stuck. But one might also think about other kind of contemporary um, malaises, such as um, climate change and the way humans are fostering that and the sorts of pervasive sin that mean we can't just say stop, as it were. What is it that holds human beings in this bind? Um, and I think August Augustine's language of sin um, and indeed original sin um, is especially helpful in unpicking what's at stake there um, in a way that's quite difficult to get at with um, uh, other modes of thought, um, particularly secular ones which don't really want to go towards the language of sin and grace. Um, so that, that's the sort of way that I'll, I'll go to Augustine and ask, OK, how does how do these deep resources allow us to address contemporary problems? I just maybe one more. I mean, the way that Augustine approaches scripture, I mean, that's going to come up um, in the book. Um, uh, he, yeah, he's, he's, he's very liberating to read if one's um, kind of stuck in the various modern dichotomies that we live with. And the, and the one that I explore in the book um, is on the one hand, um, wanting to kind of get back to historical original context, um, sort of one meaning which you're trying to unearth. It's out there. We can all get it sort of thing if we work hard enough and read all the sources. Um, on the other hand, um, a kind of... Uh, untrammeled multivalence where the text could mean anything depending on um, which perspective you happen to inhabit and are reading from and you can perhaps switch perspectives and inhabit someone else's for a while so we're kind of putting on different lenses and um, finding different stuff there which is the sort of postmodern of our modern moment um, and those things often are housed um, in one interpreter um, who can switch between those modes of talking and Augustine cuts nicely through that dichotomy in his way of seeing scripture as a web of signs um, which indeed you know they they evoke many things so there is a multi valence there but he's so all the way down concerned with the truth that um, it can't become this um, relativist uh, postmodernism that uh, is so uh, has such a stranglehold on us today so that's another example of how he speaks powerfully I think into our sort of interpretive mess yes thank you and I think you're you're absolutely right and that sort of takes us into uh, the reason for this book why did you write it what were you trying to accomplish and specifically, I'm sort of interested in the relevance and boldness of the introduction and conclusion. Uh, this book could have perhaps been touched very nichely in a, a specific tradition, and the introduction and conclusion make clear and very obvious the uh, the political implications, the cultural implications. Um, so what was the purpose behind it? And of course, 
what sort of the the reason for making that so overt. I know as a scholar, that's something we often shy away from. Um, but what made you want to to write a book that has so much cultural purpose and specifically this book? Okay, good questions. Um, lots of different angles from which I should perhaps answer that. I mean, the, the first thing is that it, it was commissioned. So um, I, I started to write it because I was asked to, which was it was a, a generous commissioning, which gave me quite free reign. Um, so this is Miles Hollingworth, who edits the series, um, approached me and said, oh, do you want to write something on Augustine? I thought, oh, great. Of course, I want to write something on Augustine. Um, and I, yeah, he basically let me do what I wanted, which was a wonderful gift. Um, and it developed pretty organically over several years. Um, but I was then um, pulling it together during the COVID pandemic times. Um, and this is really, I think, what brought out the political dimension so strongly, because we were being kind of pressed by government restrictions and a kind of new global situation where various things which have probably been there for a long time were starting to surface and surface in more overt ways. Um, and it, it it meant that it was very difficult. Well, it, it, there was something pressing to be said into that context. Um, and I felt strongly about it. And uh, they, it seemed quite related to what I was trying to say through Augustine, or at least what was emerging as what I wanted to say through Augustine. So um, those are the two two kind of framing things um, contextually. Then um, in terms of uh, what sort of content wise um, came together in the book, um, and this again was sort of stuff which I which developed organically as I read um, more Augustine and so on. On the one hand, um, questions uh, of how we ask about truth in the context of reading scripture. Um, and that, I mean, how to read scripture is a long a long-standing concern of mine, but specifically framing it in terms of truth-seeking um, was relatively new, and this was given to me by Augustine, um, in the very, particularly confessions, um, but elsewhere as well. Um, so that on the one hand, truth in the context of reading scripture. On the other hand, um, how we ask after truth in the context of public debate. Um, and that was kind of coming at me uh, more from the contemporary context, um, but one can join up the dots and there's a lot in Augustine on truth which can speak to that contemporary context um, and his way of conceiving of our relationship with truth is really so different from uh, what feels like the default now that um, it, it seemed that he might speak rather wisely um, and again counterculturally into our present. Um, so that I guess that's what brought the book into its final shape where I was both continuing with his hermeneutical work but also thinking what its ramifications were for public discourse. Um, and yes, I did go out on a limb in the introduction. It becomes quite controversial in this sort of analysis of identity discourse. Um, and yeah, there's, uh, there's a certain risk of doing that. Um, I hope my sympathies come across strongly enough in it so that I, I get what the concerns are um, in the generation of this discourse um, and that the critique is really a, to allow those concerns even better to be responded to um, rather than dismissing them out of hand. Um, so it's a way of unpicking uh, a certain kind of cultural way of thinking, which I think comes into conflict with itself. Um, and I think the sort of moral urgency of it might be better served um, if we actually stand back and look at the presuppositions fueling this kind of discourse um, and working out how we might um, shift them so that the so that the conflicts are addressed uh, and disappear. Oh, actually, yeah, one more thing on this was the um, I think you uh, 
possibly asked about oh no it, yeah in terms of how, how the project emerged the real surprise um for me was in the sort of rediscovery of substitution um which comes out quite strongly in the latter part of the book and um i've never been a fan of penal substitution um uh, so atonement theories which have substitution at their center um i've tended to be critical of um, you know with feminist voices and liberation theologians um and so on so i i um, I wasn't expecting to rediscover a kind of substitutionary doctrine of the atonement through Augustine, but that's sort of what happened in a way that um, I suppose introduced to me a rather different way of conceiving of substitution, which to my mind overcomes the problems which are rightly critiqued by feminist and other liberation theologians. Um, but that was a genuine sort of discovery along the way, um, and it seemed to tie together some of the things that I was talking about um, in terms of truth in the introduction as well. That's great. Thank you. The last question I, I have to ask before we actually get into the content of the book is what draw drove you? Um, what pulled you to these texts? They're sort of unorthodox. Confessions, of course, is common, um, but De Magistro is often sort of on the boundaries, if not discarded for being an early work. And then perhaps absent from this book is On Christian Doctrine, um, which I when I heard that you wrote a book on Augustine, I figured, you know, uh, we'll we'll get hermeneutics and non-Christian doctrine. So what was the reasoning behind these works that you drew primarily from? Uh, good question again. Um, and I suppose I would first of all want to point you back to my what I said before about reading against the grain. So yeah. I'm often attracted to slightly lesser visited parts of um, uh, these thinkers' thoughts. And so um, here we are with Augustine, and I, I, they kind of emerged organically again. So with De Magistro, um, I was I, I went to that because it's so seminal in his development of a theory of signs, um, and so is a sort of forerunner for De Doctrina. Um, even though in this book it's true, I don't go to De Doctrina. And that, that I talk about a lot in the previous book. Um, and it could have popped up here again, but there was enough work to do, I think, with the text that I did deal with. So the omission is not really very, it doesn't tell you a lot. Um, but yeah, so what I found then when I went to De, De Magistro um, was not exactly what I was expecting. Um, and it's it's there that I really got drawn into this question of truth um, and Augustine's exploration of what um, what one has to presuppose about the human truth seeker if we're to make sense of the fact that we do make judgments about things, that we um, we 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 make claims on the truth. How do we do that? Um, what are the resort? What what are the what presuppositions um, must be in place for that to uh, to make sense as something that we do deliberation and judgment making? Um, and that led me to um, this, uh, the, the sort of central term for the book, normativity, um, that we're, we're, we're always already normed in our thinking. We, we make judgments according to presuppositions which are already in place. Those presuppositions are always revisable. So, you know, as we bump into new things in the world, talk to new people, um, they will be gradually being reformed. Um, but this is an ongoing process and it's one which involves this kind of inner reflection. And it, inwardness becomes absolutely crucial as a metaphorical term, but nevertheless, it's suggesting not an external authority, but this is this is a process of um, autonomous deliberation um, on the part of the person who is seeking the truth. Um, and uh, oh, I've slightly lost my train of thought, but yeah, so th this is this is this this always already normed um, human question asking 
um, which is provisional, um, but nevertheless, um, always in operation. Um, oh, yeah, the thing I was going to say was, um, but it's often hidden. So we we often are not aware of the presuppositions we're making, um, nor of how they're being reformed over time. Um, and so uh, we often can't start to unpick um, how we're making the adjustments we're making precisely because we're hiding this um, process, which is sort of subliminally going on. Um, and so one of my uh, tasks in the book is to try and bring that process to the surface. And De Magistro was sort of critical in that process. So that, I think, answers why De Magistro. Uh, confessions 12. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, everyone goes to confessions. Um, I don't know how often to this this book, although certainly it figures, I think, a little bit more. Um, and it's just a wonderful case study of the interpretation of scripture where you do get this sort of for for the postmodern reader or the, the modern and postmodern reader. It's a minefield because it seems on the one hand to be saying yes, yes, yes to authorial intention on the one hand with Moses as the author of, of Genesis here for Augustine. And on the other hand um, of uh, a whole plurality of possible interpretations um, which don't seem to um, be anchored necessarily in what Moses was thinking. So how does Augustine hold these apparently conflicting positions together? Um, somehow we've got, it, it seems, one of my arguments is that it's the presuppositions we bring to it which make these positions of Augustine look conflicting. Um, and so we are invited to unearth, unearth those presuppositions and then have them challenged and discover, well, what presuppositions would make sense um, of the position or the positions he seems to hold. Um, so that's the kind of central hermeneutical study. And then finally, um, Enerationes, his, his um, commentaries and sermons on the Psalms. Um, this is actually more and more frequented in Augustine scholarship. Um, so in a way, I'm kind of following in a slipstream here and excited by the new discoveries of them and the readings that are being generated. Um, but what it did substantially was to bring together uh, two big themes of the book. One, um, this concept of invoicing. So Augustine reads the Psalms um, in the first place as being spoken by Christ in the voice of Christ and then in turn spoken by us uh, as members of Christ um, in Christ. Um, and so it's it's a very different way of um, figuring the reading of scripture where we speak these words ourselves. So we're not kind of looking on from without and saying, oh, what did someone mean um, hundreds of years ago? Um, uh, but rather asking, OK, how, how might I say this wisely? How, what, what might it what might it mean to speak this scriptural verse um, in a way which gets at the truth? Um, so it's quite a different way of configuring the whole act of, of reading scripture and the nature of its authority, which is no longer some external authority which imposes itself from without, but rather um, it, it's it's at one with this normative process of judgment making, which I was describing just a little bit before. Um, so that's the one thing in voicing. And then the other is substitution, which came through very strongly here. So uh, you've got Christ speaking on our behalf um, and then in turn, we might speak on behalf of others, um, taking up the voice of the psalmist um, in, in Christ's own having done so. Um, and so it leads to this this understanding of mutual substitution, um, which becomes such a big, big theme at the end. So, um, yeah, they fitted, I suppose, is, is the short answer to that rather long ramble there. Uh, no, that's that's excellent. Uh, I have noticed more and more on the Psalms in recent scholarship, and uh, it's a slipstream I'm happy to to see coming. 
I don't know how you do it. It's a lot of text to work through. It is. Uh, Yeah, I did not try to be comprehensive. (laughs) The answer to that I picked in the end, pick one, having sort of got it. Uh, the broader um, hermeneutical lens through which Augustine is working, this totus Christus theme, the whole Christ, um, and finding um, the Psalms all being woven into this um, membership of uh, of the body of Christ. Yes, great. Well, let's let's chase down that that concept of normativity, and especially you mentioned this being a process that the individual does autonomously, not with a teacher from without. Um, and also at the same time, we have such an emphasis on truth, such an emphasis on deliberation and conversation. How do those two come together, especially in De Magistro and especially um, in your reading of Augustine? Well, um, yeah, just to expand on that, on the first half of that. So individuals um, uh, inwardly normed, um, making judgments. Um, one might also extend that to communities insofar as um, one, in, yeah, communities often have a common mind um, and as a body they might make judgments which involve the same kind of inwardly normed uh, character. Um, and always provisional, um, always dealing with present presuppositions that might over time get reshaped. And we see this in, in, in traditions being reshaped as well as um, at the individual level um, with people changing their mind and so on and being reformed as they put well everyone exists in overlapping communities and, and that itself provides fodder for for reshaping of presuppositions um i mean you were sort of putting that against um the tr- uh, seeking the truth but um to me they absolutely go together i suppose I mean, maybe the sort of missing piece there is to say that the truth is not um an object that we can look at directly so it's always operative in the judgment making that we're um, involved in. Um, it's, I mean, it's the C.S. Lewis famous phrase about um, how does it go <laughs> um, when the, the light is um, shining on objects that we see. So we don't look at the light. We're looking at what the light is illuminating for us. He doesn't put it like that, but you perhaps know the bit I mean. Um, and uh, that's very helpful here. So the truth is not something we we can, in fact, look at directly. Um, it's always presupposed um, and we're always implicitly referring to the truth when we're making our judgments. Um, but it's mediated to us via our fallible presuppositions. Um, and those we can um, begin to honour, they're often invisible to us as well. Um, but insofar as we become self-reflective about them, they can sometimes um, be made explicit um, and that's the moment, and often they need to be made explicit precisely when they're breaking down and where we need to start repairing them. Um, and that reparative work is all happening in the context of, um, against the backdrop of the, the one truth, which is um, presupposed in this whole process as, as its telos um, and as its ultimate norm, as it were. Um, so we have our provisional norms, but they're all ultimately judged in the light of the supreme truth, which cannot be judged by us. It's 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 that which subjects everything else to, in the light of which everything else is to be judged, if that makes sense. Um, so that's why, uh, in a sense, truth can't be external to us, because otherwise it would become an object of our own judgment. Um, it's always transcendent um, and we are in touch with it only insofar as we're sort of involved in this self-reflexive process of um, having our presuppositions um, challenged and transformed. Um, and I think I was saying before that 
part of the problem is that this process is often hidden and I think especially so I, uh, one always says about this is about one's own age but it feels especially so at the moment particularly in sort of public discourse where um, there's a lots of assertion making um, and sort of counterclaims then coming back and then you get the culture wars and so on but without much room actually for reflecting on um, the arguments and the um, the modes of reasoning which lead to the assertions being made. So assertions can mean very different things depending on the context in which they're made. Um, and there's very little um, reflection on that in the present context. It's just this is this is either true or false, and we you know we're going to clash on it. And you can't move beyond that clash because um, precisely because the reasoning process on either side is is hidden. Um, and by the same token the presuppositions which lead to those judgments being made are also hidden and those are the sort of norms which i think need to be brought um to the light um normativity tends to sort of come in for bad press it tends to be equated um often in scholarly literature too with the status quo um or you know the the kind of external expectations that are put upon us um which then are railed against by the latest critics um, and it's not, in a sense, I think that's sort of false kind of normativity. It's a distorted kind because it's already been externalised um, and it's not that deeper kind, which I'm suggesting is, is at work, um, sometimes generating those kind of external norms. Um, but in a way that what we need to engage with this, this sort of more inward normativity precisely in order to be able to critique in a rational way um, that which comes to to be called the status quo in any particular society so it's yeah how to take what look like bare assertions or even just descriptions find the hidden norms that are fueling those and then um uh i suppose they might need to be challenged um or reconfigured or where we see there are a conflict between those norms and the other ones that are operative um and that's where we can start having reasoned debate in order to better better to address the sort of clashes that are just the surface of this whole thing. Yeah, you talk you talk a lot about truth and truth and interpretations, ideas, reasons as things that we are not in possession of, uh, but things that we join in. I think specifically in your second chapter, as you get into Collingwood and get into more hermeneutical questions, this idea that Thoughts are not something that we have inside us, but things we inhabit, truth or interpretations are not things that we possess and hold on to as definitive, but things that we might seek after or come into for a time, um, but not that we possess, stand back and hold objectively. Do you think there's a poor way to phrase that? How do you think we can move past this possession of, of truth and ideas and objectivity? Uh, especially in the first chapter, there's a lot of dialogue between objectivity and subjectivity. Yeah, that um, that puts it well, this sort of inhabiting of a truth which is larger than us and we participate in it rather than possess possessing um, the truth in, in our own private minds, as it were. So, yes, I'm, tr I'm very much trying to debunk this idea that um, uh, our values, preferences uh, um, are uh, are private um, and those are to be sort of pitted against some objective public sphere of non-negotiable fact um, and that's that's the kind of classic dichotomy between subjectivity 
um, you know, personal perspective, my own values on something, um, which is really, yeah, it's whimsical, um, you needn't be that way. Um, it can't be held up as a standard for other people. Um, on the other hand, and so over against a kind of objectivity, something out there which everyone can access, um, fact, which uh, by the same token can't be argued against. Um, it seems to me that this is a, a really pernicious binary um, and wrongly conceives both subjectivity and objectivity and they, that that um, pair needs to be fundamentally rethought. So a big aim of the book is to go through various steps of rethinking that dichotomy. So with Augustine, I'm particularly trying to get at the private public dichotomy where um, so we might think that we have ideas in our mind and when we communicate to some, someone else, we package them in some external sign and then we transmit them. Then they end up in the mind of the other person who then possesses them as well. Um, so you, and there you've also got an inward external thing going on where the idea is in the mind um, and the sign is external, just as the thing which mediates it to the other mind. Um, and I, yeah, rereading uh, that dichotomy with Augustine leads to quite a different account where inwardness is in fact precisely where we open out onto the public truth. Um, Augustine is all about um, sharing the good, sharing the truth with others um, and that we, we can never possess the truth because it's not, um, it's by definition not something which is private. Um, it's fundamentally communal um, and indeed for him it's coterminous with the, the common good um, which also comes in for some discussion in the book. Um, and so as we uh, as we think, um, as we reason with one another, we're genuinely sharing in a in a world that we inhabit, um, I suppose, an inferential world, a rational world, um, a, a, an ideas world, um, to put it maybe just a little bit um, oversimplistically. Um, in a way that uh, I suppose tr I'm trying to shift this idea that uh, ideas are something inside and rather think oh, we are we inhabit these ideas that are bigger than us that can be shared with others um, and that um, at, depending on our mode of participation can reshape the way that we think. Um, so that's that's an attempt to overcome the kind of private public. In ideas are fundamentally public and along with that also um, values. Uh, so I'm also trying kind of more deeply to get at the fact value divide. Um, and indeed, the word value becomes fundamentally unhelpful. And I, I shift towards talking about normativity as a different way of getting at um, what might otherwise be got at through the word value. And likewise, fact, um, there is no bare fact. Um, and so yeah, really, that dichotomy um, just needs to be fundamentally deconstructed. Um, and here, I suppose, I'm. how do I get to that? Uh, so I may be jumping ahead of your question here, but while I'm on it, I might as well <laughs> carry on. So go on. So um, insofar as one's, um, uh, one's deliberations, one's discourse, one's reasoning with others is a participation in a truth which is larger than oneself, which is um, ultimately one, ultimately communal, um, that truth uh, yeah, that, that that participation is also something which is drawing us towards a telos. Um, it's it's a normed activity. Um, the truth is also our norm. In other words, it's something that we are um, being invited to realise and not just um, to. Um, oh, how to put it? And the truth isn't something out there which we simply have to take note of. It's it's we, we are being reformed insofar as we discover the truth. 
Um, so it's it's an active participation, um, which is um, I mean it's very it's tantamount to this 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 reformation of of presuppositions that I was talking about before. Um, but now I, I guess this is putting it in the context um, of uh, teleological um, normative um, process, which is fundamentally reshaping us from the ground up, conforming us to the one truth which transcends us. Great. Great. Well, let's move on toward chapter two and this pursuit of truth, especially in scripture. Tell me a little bit about the the seeking of truth through scripture and especially uh, your read of Collingwood, an unexpected hermeneutic reader in many ways. Uh, tell me what got you connected with Collingwood and sort of how does he help you understand the the mode of epistemology that Augustine has going on here in Genesis 12. Collingwood was yeah, an unexpected find. Um, and certainly I, I imagine many readers will think, hang on a minute, what's, what's he doing in this book? Um, I, he was recommended to me by um, various different people. So there's a kind of convergence of, um, of the urge to, to go and read Collingwood. Um, and when I did, I, I immediately um, so found myself feeling quite at home in his um, manner of presentation, his mode of speaking, his mode of reasoning. Um, and uh, yeah, in a way that for me was quite a helpful translation of um, sometimes Augustine's more knotty uh, prose. Um, so there's it, the ancient thinkers, sometimes we need philosophical help kind of um, helping them to speak into a very different time. And Collingwood, for me, becomes a, an important mediator for that. I mean, I think I don't know genealogically whether how connected he is with Augustine, but um Certainly, there seems to be such really interesting resonance between the two thinkers. And philosophically, he seemed to do some of the work needed to, to help modern thinkers um, inhabit the difference. Uh, well, analogous presuppositions to the ones that Augustine might be working with um, when he's rethinking questions of truth and so on. Um, and in this. So just speaking back into the context that I was just talking about in terms of private public and so on. Um, where Collingwood came to my aid um, in this particular respect is in his um, philosophizing of the character of thought. Um, Augustine gets one so far in that, but Collingwood, um, I think, presses further in asking, well, you, what is it to think? What do we mean? What is the distinctive character of thought? Um, and he has, what, to me, a really astounding argument that we can think the very same thought that others are thinking even across time and one of his examples is Euclid um, when we're kind of um, re-inhabiting Euclid's um, arguments we can actually um, th those very same thoughts in, in Collingwood's words are being re-enacted um, always in a different context um, and so uh, there's a, a kind of immediate subjectivity which for Collingwood is different and that's going to that 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 might be have large ramifications but nevertheless Thought in its mediacy, as he puts it, um, is um, something which can be shared. So thought for Collingwood is public. It allows us to transcend particular moments of space time um, in a way that you can't do uh, as a body. Um, so he's got I mean, this is within the context of a really fascinating approach to the conundrum of how mind relates to matter. Um, and I and I haven't got to the bottom of this yet, but I take him to me to to be saying that um asking about mind and asking about matter are 
different ways of approaching the same world, so different sorts of question asking, um, but into the same one world. So to talk about mind requires slightly different kinds of presupposition and different sorts of questions than when we're talking in terms of matter. And then you get disciplines which operate according to these these, uh, these presuppositions. So the natural sciences um, are asking questions pertaining to matter, whereas history and art for him are asking questions pertaining to mind. Um, and so if you look at the presuppositions that these disciplines are operating with, you'll begin to get at what we mean when we talk about mind and what we mean when we talk about matter. I find that a really nice, um, a rather different way through the mind-matter problem. Um, but in this case, yeah, it's it's the fact that we can we can genuinely share the thought of another, and we it's not, this is and he's very specific. He, he doesn't mean that we have um, the identical thought, um, but uh, another member of the same species, as it were. Um, so I'm thinking the same thought of you as you are. Um, like a, this spoon is exactly the same as this one, but they're different spoons. No, it's it's even. Um, uh, more powerful than that. It's the very same thought um, that we both inhabit. Um, and that um, is really helpful in, in bringing to articulation, I think, what Augustine is after when he talks about us sharing in the common truth. And make that connection between inhabiting thoughts and reading scripture with Augustine, uh, especially with Augustine with Moses. Um, yeah, I love the way that Moses figures so prominently in Augustine's reading of Genesis. There's just something really quirky and wonderful about that and sort of baffling to the modern mind. Um, so it's 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 what it's just it's very homely. I really like it. I and love he, that that footnote right at the beginning. It just says for those concerned about the authority and, you know, whether or not Moses is a true author, nothing hangs on that. Just <laughs> Get it out of your head. That's not what we're talking yeah, about. I, I needed to get that out of the way quite early on <laughs> for anyone concerned about that. Um, yeah, so it's the way that Augustine positions himself as a fellow truth seeker alongside Moses. And they're both looking, well, upwards and inwards, outwards, so however you want to um, metaphorize it. But they're both looking in the same direction at this common truth, which they can both communally participate in. So... Uh, Augustine, when reading Moses, is not wanting to kind of excavate Moses' mind as some private sphere that might be kind of opened up and looked inside, whatever tools you 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 do to you use to do that. But rather he sees Moses as a fellow truth seeker, um, whose words prompt Augustine in turn to consider the truth that Moses was considering. Um, and uh, it's this allows one that both to be critical of scripture and self-critical at the same time, because One's got to sort of take up its words and say, hang on a minute, what sort of truth is this after? And how might this bring, in, bring into question some of what I was presupposing, um, both about what it means here and um, what I, how I might have um, under, understood it in the past? Um, and so it's an ongoing um, journey, for want of a better word, uh, of dwelling with things that might, scriptural verses that might seem perplexing, um, but they as continual prompts to seek after a truth which one's um, uh, which will only really come good eschatologically. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, yes, it does. Uh, especially with with sort of inhabiting same thoughts um, and waiting on yeah that eschatological fullness. Uh, last, let me let's go ahead and move on to chapter three. Because I feel like the book does not make sense without chapter three. Um, 
it's a, a clear theological shift. The first first two chapters are so much on epistemology, normativity, conversation, truth. And chapter three is is central, centrally presenting Christ as sort of the linchpin of this project. Why is Christ so central to the project? Um, could there maybe be a version that relies on truth as in facticity? Um, so yeah. that's that's sort of the first question. And then mm. even if it is Christ, is there a way this this model can get us past um, get us past political gridlock and and a lack of dialogue without presupposing Christ? I'm I'm moved by um, that that phrase about modernist reading that says, you know, the authority of scripture first must be accepted and and chosen by the interpreter even if they think it's authoritative. Um, so sort of, is this this whole thing at best a political theology? Can it speak beyond strict theological categories? And how do we sort of get around that choice? Uh, to go back to your problem with choice. Yeah, that's a hard question, that second one. Let me just wind back to, um, could it work without Christ? Um, and say a little bit more about how Christ fits in here, because, yes, it's it's a little bit of a bolt out of the blue. I have to agree. And I do sort of signal that in that in that third chapter. Um, so there are sort of two hopefully converging answers to that question. Um, the first is to stress that we are in the age of signs and sacraments. Um, so we can't do without mediation. Christ is the supreme sign, according to Augustine. Um, and we live by faith and not by sight. So um, it, his constant emphasis on humility and clinging on to um, what we can see um, in the hope of reaching finally what we can't see, um, I think is is really important for him. So he, this everything is in the light of the eschaton. He's a fundamentally eschatological thinker, and this is something he probably doesn't share with Collingwood. Um, at least that's my surmise and where I might become critical of Collingwood. Um, and so the presence of Christ um, becomes necessary in this um, temporal world of signs um, where we're not yet at um, the eschaton. Uh, and if we could simply skip and jump to the eschaton, well, maybe Christ wouldn't have been needed. But given that it's gone this way um, and that Christ is our way to the eschaton, it's a sort of odd counterfactual, um, if that makes sense. So and then on the other side, um, that well, maybe more substantially, um, that gives you the kind of framework. We've got um, in, in my discussion of substitution, the claim that Christ tells the truth on our behalf. And without Christ doing that, um, the theological, the Christian theological claim is that our self-reflexive normativity couldn't get off the ground because it presupposes a reception of ourselves um, from others and fundamentally from Christ as the one who steps in to kind of break the gridlock of deception. Um, so in a world of deception, if no one tells the truth, then we're fundamentally stuck. Uh, and on a Christian account, it's Christ who it really is, is the only one, the first one, um, who tells the truth. And in his wake, we can begin to learn um, how to re-inhabit the truth that we have lost. Um, and so Collingwood's reenactment gets a uh, reenactment of the thoughts of others um, gets bound up here with substitution. We have to have someone think on our behalf before we can step in and think for ourselves. And then in turn, we will think on behalf of others and vice versa. So it becomes this kind of mutual 
um, substitutionary ecology. Um, and Christ is the key to that logic of mutual substitution. And without him, it kind of all falls down as it happens. Whether it might have worked another way is, yeah, as I say, something we'd have to guess at. Um, and the crucial thing here is actually that it, without the right kind of substitutionary logic, we fall into a um, corrupt kind of substitution where it's some one one person's or one community's good at the expense of another person or another community. So good shared out in a competitive way where one has it at the expense of another. Um, whereas Christ's mode of substitution is in the service of the genuinely common good, which means that when I um, become a substitute for another uh, within the logic, within, within a kind of Christo logic, it will be also for my good. So my my deeper good is also served by this sacrifice. It may cost, but in such a way that fundamentally I'm tapping into something true, uh, truer also for me. So in, in short, acting on behalf of another need not be at my own expense. Um, and without that uh, sort of healing of substitution, we remain in this competitive world where some lose out horribly at the expense of others. And we see that, you know, all over um, politically and otherwise. So it's that that's where I see a really important aspect of repair um, needing to happen. Um, so now to your second question, um, how how might this speak beyond a kind of Christian theological framework? Is that another way of sort of phrasing? Yeah, I suppose so. Maybe are are these paradigms translatable? Um, um, or, yeah. or maybe a better question, just how do we get beneath that subjective choice to buy into holding the text authoritatively? Um, I'm not sure I, I would want to put it that way. So I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna go back to your earlier ways of phrasing the question. Yeah. Um, um and I guess ask, well, how so um Hmm. How can I put this? I mean, what what the Christo logic is driving the Christian towards is precisely uh, a stepping into the shoes of others. Um, so there's a sort of transcendence of uh, possible transcendence of the Christian categories going on already there that you're you're kind of drawn towards it precisely from within a Christian framework, um, and that means engaging with the normativity of others. So in the last chapter, when I get into um, substitutionary argument um, and debating with others as involving my uh, inhabiting the argument of the other and indeed bettering that argument by engaging with it sort of in my own voice critically to, to, to bring um, to bring it even more into conformity with the truth and then have someone um, do that same thing to me. Um, that's something which I get. Maybe that that is a sort of way of translating what's going on here into something which you wouldn't have to talk about it in terms of Christ. I think that's something which one could be quite um, uh, compatible with other philosophies, other ways of thinking, and other practices. Um, but it's for me, it's fueled by um, this Christian framework, um, which I guess yeah, leads to thinking about it in a substitutionary way. Um, but the practice itself um, is precisely about tapping into other norms that others are working with, recognising one's own fallibility, uh, in my case, as a Christian. Um, and so my Christian presuppositions are precisely the ones that I hold fallibly and provisionally as ones that might 
uh, be brought in question when I encounter others. And actually, you mentioned at the beginning scriptural reasoning as a practice that I've been uh, involved in and actually very much formed by. Um, and just there, you have exactly this dynamic. Well, in, in my understanding of of, of, um, of what's going on there, uh, of um, now how to put it, um, where um, I, I'm I, I'm involved in a scriptural reasoning discussion um, with Muslims and Jews as a Christian myself, in such a way that my Christian presuppositions are fully alive and active but precisely um, have the spotlight shed on them as indeed Christian presuppositions, which might therefore differ from the presuppositions that others bring um, in such a way that then with them can be brought to more um, explicit acknowledgement, the kinds of reasonings that have led to them, um, where there might be potential kind of conflicts um, um, that others will see more readily than I will, others from other traditions as well as other Christians. Um, in such a way that, um, yeah, I'm challenged in in the in the fallible and provisional Christian beliefs that I hold. Um, so yes, I will articulate that process um, in terms of the work of Christ. Um, but um, what it's going to do at that meta level is precisely to allow my Christian presuppositions to be um, held in question. Um, and it, I think fundamental to this is uh, that very simple recognition that we might be wrong um, and that someone else might be right. And it's it's kind of easy to say, but it's very difficult to live. Um, and that, that that kind of honest dialogue with others who operate in really quite different traditions and frameworks of thinking um, can help us um, more, I suppose, more rigorously hold to this this simply put I might be wrong um way of uh way of holding my beliefs yes thank you yeah that's sort of exactly where where I I was hoping you'd you'd end up with humility um in reading this book I just feel like it could just be epistemic humility all the way through um a very detailed argument about it and in many ways it sort of parallels uh, De Magistro with with this contradiction you you identified at the beginning of of Augustine's text nothing's learned without signs nothing's learned with signs so so Christ uh, and there's some humility there and there's some lack of knowledge transfer um, mm -hmm. and I think your work is is similar in sort of well we can't hold it all subjectively and we can't hold it all objectively and we can't it's not all private and it's um, there's a, a lot of breaking down those clear dichotomies and distinctions. Um, and so it's it's good to have to know I'm not reading that completely into the text, uh, a push for for humility in our own beliefs. Yes, you're right. Definitely right to find that. Absolutely. Good. Tell me a little bit um, just about the conclusion specifically for my interest. You know, I'm I'm interested in sort of individual identity self-knowledge, public discourse, um, where do you feel like the book concludes picking up on those themes from the introduction? Um, okay, let me have a think about that. So um, self-knowledge um, and uh, yeah, both taken individually and more communally um, is very much comes around in the conclusion as something to be explored. And I, I guess self-reflexivity becomes an important word there too. So um, let me just back up a tiny bit. So I'm going to go go back to substitution as a theme, um, which 
I suppose, allows us to say that we receive ourselves fundamentally from others. Um, and indeed, if others didn't go before us, um, we wouldn't be the selves or become the selves that we are. We wouldn't even have selves. Um, so there's a fundamental receptivity about the self. I think that's lost in a lot of um, identity talk today um, with a much more kind of choice based, assertive account of what it means to have identity. So if one still wants to talk about identity, I'd want to put it in much more receptive mode and recognise it as something that's always already been um, being formed in the context of others. Yes, um, I guess there can be pushback and um, there's it, it's it's a process. Our identities unfold over time, I suppose. Um, and so the self-reflexivity comes in um, at the point precisely where we recognise that we're both receiving ourselves and taking up a certain position in doing so, um, which involves presuppositions about who we are, about how we relate to others that might themselves need to be brought into question or at least reflected upon so that we know, um, well, uh, yeah, we know we know what we're doing and um, where we might be going and how we might be having an impact on others. Um, and where we might be going wrong, I suppose. So to come back to the theme of humility, um, self-reflexivity is fundamental to recognising that the uh, any account that we, any provisional account that we have of ourselves is going to be a finite and fallible one and one that might need to be changed over time. Um, and that, so having received ourselves, um, it's again precisely through ongoing um, reception that we may come to truer knowledge of ourselves. So actually, one other thing to say, which perhaps doesn't come across particularly strongly in the conclusion, is that there's um, uh, a pairing of construction and discovery. So as selves, I, I believe that we both make who we are and we discover who we are. So there's a truth about ourselves, which is held in God, in Christ. Um, and that uh, is always just behind, you know, we, we can never look directly at that. But it's something that we, we over time may, by grace, inhabit more and more. Um, on the other hand, um, that unfolding of who we are in God is something that happens in time um, only with our own um, uh, participation in it. So as we're being reformed, um, it's not that there's a static self that we're being conformed to, but it's uh, that self is one that is only made over the course of time. So. I guess I'm I'm quite a constructionist when it comes to all sorts of identity questions. Um, and I think that allows for a much better account of the fluidity of um, human being in the world. Um, but at the same time, I want to hold on to an account of the human being that um, is a truth seeker with a telos that um, is, well, a telos which is the common good, so that whatever I discover to be my truest self will be for the good of both me and others and that's not always how um constructivist understanding of identity plays itself out so that's where i would see my own slightly critical appraisal of that kind of language great thank you does that mm. answer your question yes it does and then some thank you good well tell me briefly what are you working on now or next um and then i've, I've kept you longer than i promised i would so you can take as long as you want for that 
uh, yeah, I, well, it's I'm never quite sure what I'm working on until I've actually done it. So <laughs> we'll see if this turns out. But at the moment, I have very vague plans to um, continue thinking about normativity in the context of Augustine's De Trinitate. Uh, I'm quite I've never been a big fan of the doctrine of the Trinity and I've always I I've read this work several times but um I've never um quite been known how to make head or tail of it um and so I've sort of shied away from a more a deeper engagement which will really help me sort of unpick well what's Augustine up to here and again how might one read it constructively for for today so um I want to confront that a bit more head on, um, get to the bottom of some of my own concerns about the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, maybe come. Well, I, I guess at the moment I, I always say that um, I believe it, but don't understand it. Um, and it would be nice if um, faith <laughs> taken on authority might um, I sort of issue in in a, in a sort of more thoughtful and rational engagement with the doctrine of the Trinity, but precisely in the context of um, these questions about normativity, which might lead to a rather different reading of that work than is common. I mean, there are lots of different ways of reading it around already, um, but I might end up really somewhere quite different again, and we'll see how that all emerges. Great. I'm looking forward to whatever it ends up being. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So am I. <laughs> uh, my last question, if you could recommend um, another recent work on Augustine, something that you've you've read recently or has been published, you know, in the last couple of decades, at least. Is there anything that you have come to mind? I'm glad you went a couple of decades because recent can mean quite different things. Because yes. <laughs> um, I'd probably go back to John Dealey. Um, who's written on Augustine in the context of his development of a, um, a triadic semiotics or his, his tracing of triadic semiotics through the ages, um, going through John Poinceau um, in the Middle Ages and then on to C.S. Peirce in the modern period. Um, and August, Augustine for him is the, uh, I suppose, instigates this trajectory as kind of formative of its early stages. Um, I find that a really rich way of approaching, particularly his De Doctrina. Um, Dealey doesn't especially ask theological questions of Augustine, so that's partly where I, I saw my role as uh, in a um, in building on Dealey. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, I think he's he's well known in the semiotics world, but perhaps less so in the in Augustinian worlds. Um, it's hard also not to mention Rowan Williams's on Augustine um, as a classic that of course everyone should read. <laughs> another uh, another great interpretation of of the psalms mm, augustine indeed. very similar uh reading with substitution so i was his essay left me wanting more in that um that framework of substitution and reading with christ and praying the psalms with christ so this book was was a welcome follow-up i came across it for the first time last year so yeah of course that's a great one thank you um and actually i shouldn't stop without mentioning Oliver O'Donovan as well as a um, a brilliant reader of Augustine um, and actually much more of an, a genuine Augustinian scholar than I am so I've learned a lot from him and of course he comes into the book also on the political side at the end so that's a sort of interesting convergence of interest there. Great thank you well this has been Susanna Ticciotti in her book Reading Augustine on Signs, Christ, Truth and the interpretation of scripture. Professor Ticciotti, thank you. Thank you very much.
I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Professor Ticciotti. Please go buy her book, Reading Augustine, on Signs, Christ, Truth, and the Interpretation of Scripture. Our theme music is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray. I will be back here again in a month with another scholar to talk about their work and the life and thought of St. Augustine. Thank you.